This is Arthur Bush. You're listening to Radio Free Flint. And today I have Ryan Laurie, uh, who is a former uh, white nationalist who has uh, who grew up in Flint and who's here to talk to us today about his journey and what it was like to grow up in Flint and how he got engaged in uh, white nationalist uh, um, activities and we'll also have Brian talk to us a bit about what his current work is, and and uh, I think you'll find it uh, quite a fascinating uh, interview. So, without any further ado, welcome, uh, Ryan. I appreciate it, and it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you very much. Now, uh, Ryan, you grew up in Flint, right? Yes, I uh, grew up on the east side of Flint, uh, Rollingwood. We we used to say it's not the east side; we're our own little neighborhood there, you know, in community, but. Uh, at Rollingwood, which is uh, Western and uh, Richfield Road area, you know, behind there. So uh, you, you know, that's a rough and tumble area. Mm -hmm. Very so, rough. Tell, tell us about your family a little bit. So I really, honestly, lived like uh, I try to say, like two lives. So my mom's side of the family, we, uh, she was a single mother, raised three children on her own, worked a third shift job. Uh, so it was very hard to try to hold down a, you know, a rough teenager from the east side. Um, on my father's side of the family, he lived in the suburbs, so he actually lived in Kersley schools, where I actually went to, to school at a young age. I didn't have to go to Flint schools. Um, so I would see the suburban life when I was at his house and then come back to my mom's and all my friends were, you know, from Flint. And uh, so it was, you know, I, like I said, two, two sides to, to how life could be growing up. Uh, one side, I felt like I had more white privilege. On the other side, uh, not so much. You know, we were really, really poor. Did your family have any engagement or involvement in uh, white nationalist activity? So, you know, at a young age, no. My mom's side, I never saw anything. My dad's side was, uh, like I said, not, it wasn't uncommon to hear the N-word at the dinner table. Now, there is some history in my family going back to my great-great-grandfather. Okay. So yeah, he was, yeah, he would have... Uh, from what we're told, he was buried in his robes. Uh, he was a member of the KKK. We actually used to own a building that was on the corner of Leith and, uh, gosh, Leith and Franklin Road. They actually used to have our family name, Lurie, up on it in brick. And it was supposed to be a, an old bar or a place for prostitutes, from what I hear in the story. Um, it's, it's been torn down now. It's not even there anymore. And that was where some of the KKK members and different people actually used to meet um, and, and kind of hang out. So your grandpa had a robe. Yeah, my great great grandpa. Yes. When you grew up, was there were you ever involved in any kind of gang activity, or did you see any kind of 
so growing up in Rollingwood I and on the east side period I was all over Flint so I always I mean during the 90s and you know you were a prosecutor at that time there was gang activity everywhere um, in the city of Flint especially in Rollingwood where I grew up uh, we had a the Cobras and some Vice Lords and Bloods that uh, really had a stronghold in the, the area that I was from there and so I saw some drive-by shootings um, I, it wasn't uncommon to see guys committing crimes that were involved with gang activity me and myself personally I was never actually part of a gang but definitely had friends and people that were affiliated and so there was a lot of white kids that you know they would say racial things there were definitely some racist uh, tension there um, but never any type of gangs early on in my life that were so, I mean, I lived a very, I was in an abusive life. My father was very abusive, uh, family that was too as well. So I wasn't home as much. I, my, my mother's boyfriend also was very abusive himself. So I ran the streets a lot and uh, found myself into some trouble um, early on in my juvenile life. Um, I did face a trial at a very young age. Yep. So I was accused of rape um, uh, from Kersley schools. I was a Kersley schools student. Um, and had five girls that had came out and said on different occasions that something had happened to them. Now, during the trial, a lot came out that um, probably should have came out in the beginning before there was ever even a trial, um, where some of them had admitted lying, and then eventually was found not guilty um, in the courts. Now, because of that, it, it uh, you know, my life kind of went down from there. I started to hang out with people I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. And because of um, the trial, your life went down. It was because of your behavior. Yes, my behavior. No, be behavior. I, I I faced a trial, and then from there, I didn't go back to trying to be an AB honor roll student. I was uh, stealing things. I was uh, totally um, creating a a monstrous situation for my parents at the time. Okay. And so. And then and then then you started getting into trouble, real trouble. Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually was like you said, hanging out with some people in gangs, but not. Um, doing anything specifically for a gang, but I uh, was stealing things to smoke cannabis. Um, we, you know, doing different stuff to have money to, you know, put shoes on my feet, the kind of shoes that I wanted, not what my mom could necessarily afford. Yeah, so I had um, actually stole my stepmother's vehicle, actually going to get my uh, teenage girlfriend at the time a pregnancy test. She said she was pregnant. And on my way to actually pick her up to go do all these things, I actually crashed into a parked car at the time and then I took off from the scene. I was uh, put on probation. Uh, Kent McVitty uh, was my probation officer at the time. Served on some probation for a short period of time before I ended up finding myself in some more trouble um, from stealing some things and doing other stuff where I, I ran away. I was just out on the street so I wasn't checking in um, with probation or my parents. So it, it sort of got to be a lifestyle for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know if there was the adrenaline rush there for some of the stuff that we were doing or what it was, but it was just more of uh, not wanting to be home and wanting to get into trouble, you know. And uh, so, I mean, eventually... it wasn't one of these things where just one day you decided, you know, I want to take a, you know, a bottle of pop out of the cooler at the store and see if I can get out the door. I mean, you woke up in the morning and kind of organized your day around doing shit, right? Yeah, I mean, we were always looking to see what kind of trouble we could get into, especially going to Paro. Most of the kids there, we all did drugs, uh, you know, so we, we... So we got that established that you were heading down the road of being a real criminal. Yeah. And then you met Judge Duncan Beagle. Yeah, and Judge Beagle actually wrote uh, a huge letter to me, um, and I wrote him a couple of letters, too. Um, and decided that Glen Mills Schools was going to be the best program for me to 
um, get my life straight and to stop hanging out with the people that I was hanging out with. Judge Beagle um, wrote you a letter? Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, I was really heavy into sports, um, basketball, uh, football, wrestling, different things, and uh, Judge Beagle's always been involved in sports here locally, and so um, I think he took a keen eye to, you know, who I was, and um, he was my trial judge as well, so he, I think he really got to see a lot of my backstory of my life, and. So um, he, were you on probation to Judge Beagle? Yes, yes, I was on probation, that's when I was, I was actually violated uh, from stealing some things and from running away, not checking in for probation. And when they violated me, that was when Judge Beagle said, um, you know, if you continue down this road, you're going to end up either dead or in prison, you know, make make a major mistake. Let's uh, try Glenn Mills out. So he he sent you to Glenn Mills, basically, mm-hmm. which Glenn Mills is a boys school. Yep. It, it's a place for troubled kids. Yes. Very troubled. Kids. And it's located a long ways from Flint, right? Yeah, it's in uh, Concordville, Pennsylvania. So Glen Mills uh, Schools, Pennsylvania. It's um, just outside of Philadelphia. All right. So you got your first big adventure outside of Flint, but it was to Glen Mills where the court sent you. And then, of course, you were you were under the jurisdiction of the probate court at that point. Yep. Honestly, a lot of self-discipline. Um, I, I wish there would have been more of a mentorship program after we left, but um, I can't blame that on anybody but myself for the mistakes I made. But Glenn Mills was great. I mean, to be honest with you, I got my education that I needed because I was able to focus um, on school. Um, I actually earned a lot of leadership there by following the program and doing what they told you to do. So um, it had the structure you were lacking in, in, at home in Rollingwood. Yes, definitely. Okay. So then you graduated from Glen Mills. Did you come back to Flint after that? So I joined the military. I came back to Flint for about two months before I shipped off again and was gone. And you had a lot of structure in the army, I assume. Yes. Yes, definitely. At a point in time and you can't be out picking up cars and No, no. And dope. No. Uh, (laughs) You got out of, eventually you served in the army for how long? Uh, For four years. Um, Came back home. Uh, during the housing crash. So it would have been right around 2007, 2008. I was home on some leave actually for a short period of time and found myself actually getting into trouble. So I was still kind of in the military process there, but had never been convicted of a crime or anything, you know, while I was in the military. So I was able to ETS, um, come home and... You got out of, and then came back home and that probably wasn't your best move, right? No, I should have stayed in. I still to my, well, you know, life has its ups and downs, but everything happens for a reason the way I look at it. But definitely I wish I would have stayed in and retired. So you said that you you, you told me earlier in our conversation that you had an uncle that was involved. You said earlier, your great grandfather had been involved in the Ku Klux Klan, but you had a more immediate relative when you got out of the army. So my uncle actually had just got out of prison. And um, I had a huge falling out with two of my friends, two black men that um, to this day are still great friends of mine. But at the time we had a big falling out because something was stolen from my house, food actually. Um, Understand my uncle also at a very young age molested my cousin and I. Um, He had always been kind of a a bad influence in my life and obviously my predator too at a very young age. Um, Growing up, uh, he was only eight years older than me. So he, um, 
you know, would get into trouble hanging out with some of the same older guys that I was hanging out with. Was he into this, any of this hate stuff? Any of this? Yes, he was. So when he came out of prison, he had joined the Aryan Brotherhood while he was in prison. And um, because of that, he met quite a few guys. It's a, it's a, it's a white nationalist group. Um, most of what we find in America, they're really established themselves in prison. So a lot of the radicalization that they do is in prison itself. Um, and they're a white group that believes in not doing drugs, uh, no alcohol, and uh, protecting the what the. Do you start getting into it because of him, or was what, what was it he was teaching you? He took me and actually, uh, so I'd gotten to the fight with my friends I had told you about, and I was very angry. And I was angry at the world at the time because I couldn't find a job, and I probably should have been more angry at myself and getting my life together. But I was taking it out on everybody else. Um, I actually was introduced to a man named Ron Chadwell. Um, that my uncle had actually knew um, previous to actually going to prison. Um, and then uh, a couple of the guys that he was in prison with that were hanging out with Ron at the time uh, with the Buick City Boot Boys, who was a skinhead organization in the city of Flint at that time before I had actually even started hanging out with them. Um, he took me to introduce me to Ron. Ron was a very charismatic type of, uh, I call him a cult leader. Um, he wasn't your typical what I would expect to see when you see this guy. I was, you know, my uncle Timmy is taking me to introduce me to these guys that are skinheads. And I'm thinking I'm going to see this shaved head, big, huge, bulky guy with tattoos. Um, but it was actually a complete opposite. He's a very small little guy missing a finger um, and just talked real, real low. Um, but all he ever talked about was hate rhetoric. And so he pushed it down everybody's throats as much as possible. And Yes, he was from Flint. He was actually murdered um, in Flint um, a few years back. Um, I'm pretty sure the murder to this day um, is still went unsolved. I don't know if it was his past caught up with them um, or what happened, but uh, he was murdered in his home. Yeah. And so this Buick City Boot Boys, that's a local group of some kind of name? Yeah, they were a skinhead group. They, had a, they were on the east side off of uh, Oklahoma. They had a swastika burnt into their front yard. Um, they had different, several different flags hanging up in the backyard. One of the cases that really put them, I guess what they considered on the map was where a Jewish man was actually stabbed to death and then drowned in the Flint River um, by two of the members. I guess they said that he was a Jewish infiltrator. He tried to infiltrate the group, they found out. Um, and so when that happened, they- Were the people who did the murder caught? Yes, they both are serving life sentences. They were brothers, actually, both are brothers. So were they part of this Buick City group? Yeah, they were the, it was part of the Buick City Boot Boys. Ron Chadwell was the president at the time. Um, Ron was always good about keeping his nose clean so that nothing ever could get pointed back to him. When it comes to this group that you uh, start to affiliate with, did they hold regular meetings? Yeah, you know, in the beginning, it was really unorganized. It was more of a Ron had a keg over at the house all the time. And there was parties, young people that he would try to bring around. And it wasn't until I actually came in and started to try to organize it more like the military would. And um, we sat down and had some conversations with some people through the National Socialist Movement, who is like the largest uh, Nazi organization, they say, in the, in the United States. So you, um, you, because you had been in the military... Mm -hmm. And you had learned certain things about discipline and order and organization. You then were able to apply that. How old was this Ron? Ron Chadwell, oh, gosh, he died in his 40s. So, yeah, he would have been in his uh, late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. 
Were they talking? Did they have arms? Did they have, you know, were they collecting guns or weapons? Yeah, actually, one of the first times that I was introduced to these guys, I came to the gate right. um, and there was a guy actually with a pistol, um, a firearm on him at the time, and they were doing tattoos in the garage. I seen the pistol on his arm or on his side, and I almost got the, uh, you know, the fight or flight. Like, I don't know if I should be here, um, but I went ahead and went with it anyways. They, they, they did have multiple different firearms. Most of them was, you know, stuff that each person owned individually. But uh, Ron did have a decent sized stockpile at his house. So. And did they ever do training with these weapons? You know, we didn't do as much as we probably should have. That was something that um, was definitely spoke about stuff that we should start getting into, especially with my training with, the, you know, an M16A2 and some of the M4s. Ron had, I believe his brother actually had an AR-15 at the time. Um, and I think there was an SKS that was brought out, you know, on different occasions. And these are all, um, these are all assault rifles you're talking about. Right, right. Now, and, um, the answer to that question was yes, you did, you did do things with the guns. Yeah, yeah. We, we showed in different ways of, you know, dismantling, putting back together, you know, how, how you could shoot how you should hold your weapon um, when you're doing mount training things like that uh, we also did a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat too so and did you practice with these guns out in the woods someplace or no we had uh there was a couple times on occasion where um we had had people that we knew that threw parties for us that we would uh we actually had a couple of stolen four-wheelers at the time that we had took out to the middle of the woods and kind of had a bunch of tents set up and so we went out and kind of did target practice Right. um in the it's woods not the any plan to go you know take over city hall or something like that no 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 not at all okay. uh, everything we did was mostly about trying to just mainstream hate at the time and, and connecting with groups uh, around the world and trying to like i guess more globalize what we were doing um instead of just being some small group from the east side of florence so you were trying to connect your group to outside organizations that peddled hate yeah and we eventually did i mean it was something that um Ron's focus he had to, you know he had plans for the future of what he wanted this group to become um, he said the old times of the skinheads you know shaving your heads and um, just being destructive you know doesn't bring in money it doesn't bring in the connections that he needed um, so we started to we actually connected with the national socialist movement at the time they were actually housed their their main center headquarters was actually out of Minnesota and now it's in Detroit but um did you when you say you connected to them did you go to their meetings or did they come to your meetings they they came to us we met with them one time huh, crazy as it is we took them to the red baron in burton the bar there and had a large meeting with them there we used the bar more as the we used the bar more because the the name you know to bring these guys in from outside and kind of take them to this bar not that the red baron has anything to do with skinheads it was just the location that we chose um, we had a meeting there where we talked about several rallies and ideas that we could do for this area, how to kind of uh, branch out, you know. Did, did, did you ever plot violence as part of this group? No. So my, was there violence? Yes, there was violence. These guys would go out sometimes um, in, you know, their vehicles and have their flags flying on the side and throw rocks and two liters and whatever they could out the windows. Um, myself, because I held a leadership position, um, my whole job and um, what I was put forth to do was to mostly mainstream us. A lot of the internet, what I knew how to do with the internet at the time. So um, your, your job was to be the so social media director of the, whatever they were called, the rolling. Yeah, basically we had try, try to set up a rolling wood skins is what we eventually rebranded everything. Okay. In. All right. And so you, you were trying to 
and the reason you're on social media is not only to communicate with others within the group, right? But social media, by definition, is to interact with others outside your group. Yeah, it was to obviously share the rhetoric and um, spew hate anywhere we could, but to also try to pick up membership, um, you know, at a, in a larger scale. All right. So these guys are off on frolics where they're doing uh, destructing property and so forth. Were they doing any burnings of crosses or? Not, not the group that I was part of. It's not to say that there wasn't something like that maybe going on with other groups, but uh, we never actually took place in any type of cross burnings. That's more of like a KKK model for. So your group, what you're trying to tell me, and I, I'm not trying to be a comic or anything, but your group was more akin to be an evangelist for, for hate than it was to be, you know, street fighters for hate. Right, exactly. The, the old ways of a lot of skinheads were street fighters go out and just destroy stuff and, um, kill, you know, kill people, kill people, violence. Yes, exactly. And uh, the worst of the worst. Um, but Ron's plan when I came in was to create more order and um, kind of spread the the message of trying to bring in leadership and, and membership. Were you ever afraid that, that the FBI or, or local police would infiltrate your group? Um, yeah, that was talked about all the time. We had security briefings on the weekends, like I did in the military. I told them that I thought that we should have security briefings um, where we spoke about who was membership. We did do a lot of vetting of members that came in. Um, and a lot of times before you could actually become a member, um, Ron or some of the other guys really got to know who your family members were, what you were doing, who you're hanging out with. But there was several, you're constantly looking over your back because you you know, when you're full of hate and you're doing these kind of things, you don't trust anybody. You know, you don't even trust yourself. Have something to where the, you know, the media or somebody else could use something against us when it comes to like violence, murder, something like that. Um, we, the image that we were trying to create in order to go mainstream or take it um, further, we, we couldn't have that kind of name. Ron didn't want that. So we went over that just like the military would, you know, don't go out drinking and driving. Don't do anything to get yourself in caught and in trouble for something else. Um, but we would also talk about how we needed to be very aware that, yes, there was law enforcement agencies that we believe was already watching us, which they were. Um, so we had the Flint Police and Genesee County Sheriff's Department, I know for a fact. And I know since then, with the work that I do now, that the FBI was starting to, an SPLC had some uh, members that were trying to kind of keep a keen eye on what we were. So you went to uh, this group, you were doing these briefings, which you called security briefings, and then... Did, did did the did the FBI or anybody actually infiltrate your group? Not that I ever know that we were ever infiltrated. Uh, one of the members, um, James Travardis, at the time. Your security briefings, what would they consist of? Uh, more of just going over why we shouldn't do certain things uh, when we're not together. Um, don't do anything that's going to make the organization look. But he uh, actually had... There were some crimes that we were committing to make money on the side, um, stealing some boat motors. Um, as petty as it sounds, we were bringing in a decent amount of money for them. Uh, James was actually caught and got greedy and um, stole something that had a tracking system on it. Um, and Genesee County Sheriff's Department was actually able to get him to turn. Um, and then that was when he started to kind of work for the police and uh, reporting back, you know, what kind of activity we had going on at the time. Um, and eventually brought, you know, how my arrest came about was because of him. All right. So the group started to engage in what I would call entrepreneurial activities. That is, they're trying to make money. Yes. For yourself or for the group? So what we did was mostly um, 
we had some of the cut obviously was the guys that were committing it would get to take some of the cut back to their home um and some of it all went back into the group a lot of us worked part-time jobs on the side some of us did so that money was for your own home you know for you to take home but we did have membership uh dues and so um anybody that could you know bring in something how much did it cost to belong to this thing yeah, I remember it was really, really cheap in the beginning. It was like $10 a month. That got you beer. Um, there, was, there was a keg that Ron constantly kept refilled all the time. And, and that was mostly to bring in the young guys. I didn't necessarily believe in the drinking and the drugs as much, although it did bring girls around, females that were constantly hanging out with us. And so it was just a party life, honestly, until it, that was mostly just to kind of get you in, you know, give you a taste of something maybe fun. And then um, you were introduced to other things that we were doing. And how much did it cost after that? I think we eventually, um, I, I, if I can remember, I think it ended up going right around like twenty or thirty dollars. I mean, we were in the city of Flint. You know, if we had tried to, you know, make a membership fifty to hundred bucks or do something crazy like that, um, which even that's not a lot, but to do something like that in the city of Flint, you're never going to get people to join. And so we um, mostly just made it about doing something for the group rather than you know, necessarily bringing in money. A lot of these guys were poor, you know, East side. Um, what what did you do with the money once you collected it? A lot of times it went to Ron. So Ron wasn't the actual labeled as the president. He labeled himself as a secretary um, of the organization and the treasurer. And so a lot of the money stayed right at his house and the safe that he had there. Um, to be honest with you, I think Ron was going out and spending some of this, you know, we never really sat down and said, Hey, let's go over a count on the money. Most of everybody just kind of trusted him. Um, but, but Ron always had a nicer car than everybody else. So, <laughs> so with the hate group, the hate group, we never actually took it to back to the bricks. That was the Crim Festival that we took that to. That was when I was with the hate group. Uh, uh, back to the bricks is in my later years when I actually organized against hate. So it was a completely different <laughs> side of my life then. Okay, well, then let's talk about what you did first when you were for it before you were against it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we went to the Crim Festival of races, not uh, back to bricks. And when we went to the Crim, we did that because... Like I said, we wanted to go more mainstream. Most of the groups like National Socialist Movement, people that you saw getting media attention and any type of media attention, whether it's negative or positive, was attention focused on the group. Right. So you were actually trying to get attention at that point. Yes. Most of the time you spent trying not to get attention, right? Right. By this time, we had had a decent amount of members. We had about 50 different guys um, that were in and out most of the time. We felt like that was a good enough number now. And we had already connected with National Socialist Movement um, and felt like we, in, in another group, the Hammerskins out of Canada, that we felt like we had a substantial system set up for us to start kind of uh, going to the media. We have this uh, road race uh, running uh, activity that's one of the largest events of its kind in the country. Yeah. It's people from all over the world. And so you decide you're going to do some kind of an action for this road race. Yep. So we were, we brought about 15 different guys down to the event and we were passing out flyers. Um, now, eventually. What did the flyers say? There was a lot of rhetoric about um, why you should protect the white race. Uh, we had the 14 words of the white man that was on there, which are um, words that were created to, uh, you know, about protecting, you know, white culture. Um, we had the words or the numbers 1488 on there, which the 14 stands for the 14 words of the white man. 88 was the uh, eighth letter of the alphabet twice, HH for Hail Hitler. Um, and then just some stuff on there, how they could join, how to find our uh, MySpace page actually at the time and 4chan um, to, to kind of hook up with us on a Discord server. So what did you do at the, at the event itself? 
you were just passing things out? Yeah, we were passing flyers out. Um, every time we went up to somebody, mm-hmm. said, you know, basically protect your white race, uh, white, white, white cultures under attack, basically launching off some Zionist conspiracy theories that um, the Jewish people were going to take over the United States if we didn't do something about it. At that time, immigration was still a huge hot topic or just started to become a real hot topic. And so we use that too, that, you know, immigrants were taking our jobs away from us and that you needed to do something now to act now. Um, we did have the police actually stop us. Um, eventually they had to, to let us go back out again. Um, and they called the prosecutor's office and the prosecutors actually told them that they had to let us go and do what we were doing. We, if we weren't committing violence and all we were doing was passing out flyers that they, they couldn't do anything. And I knew a lot about my constitutional rights at the time. So we definitely started spitting out a bunch of constitutional um, at some then, point you had we had signs and different stuff made up that day at the rally that had uh just different uh white power rhetoric on them okay and that, then that got you attention i take it yeah the police by that time now were obviously paying attention to us and then the media also had caught wind of what was going on and then we met with uh several different organizations uh one being the main focus who organized the national socialist movement up in cadillac michigan at one of their parks there did did you participate in their rallies nationally in the other cities? Um, Detroit um, on a couple of occasions. Um, they've had some rallies there. I never traveled to, you know, Minnesota. I couldn't afford to, would your to leave. Group, would your group go to Detroit to participate? Yes. Yes. We went. Uh, on, so what I'm asking is the kids from Flint would go down there, men, uh, yep. down and participate with other people from around other cities. Yes. Yes. Detroit had a really, really big stronghold for skinhead groups. Um, several, there's about three different groups that were there at the time and still to this day, uh, National Socialist Movement, their headquarters, they actually moved to Detroit. Um, and so they would hold, uh, a lot of times it'd be small marches down a couple of different streets, but it always caught huge media attention anytime the National Socialist Movement did something. So eventually you get in trouble. Yes. Again. Yes, as an adult. I mean, the trouble more than just getting caught passing out flyers yep they uh so james trevartis who i had spoke about earlier had already been working with the police um and they had enough evidence to bring us down for the uh, boat motors um and for these two four-wheelers that we had kept um on us that were stolen as well from the pier um they set up a sting to have guys come in that they told us were just wanting to buy the four-wheelers off of us james set it up and they actually were undercover sheriff's officers um, at the time. And so my house was raided and um, I was arrested. Were they interested in the raid in your activities with the skin? Yeah. So that was, so when I was brought in, obviously, you know, what I, the crimes that I committed was the first questioning line of questioning that I received just to see what I would say if I would, you know, basically admit to what I did. And, and I did, you know, they had all the evidence they needed in the world to convict. Um, so I, you know, admitted to what I did. i most defense attorneys would have told me just to keep my mouth shut, but I didn't. I, I spoke. I was sick of living the type of life that I was living. Um, and that a lot of times that's uh, the times when we find people most vulnerable to actually try to de-radicalize. Um, obviously, at the time, I didn't know anything about de-radicalization, you know, or what it even meant. If I'd have met you, if I would have met you, Ryan, in that time, you didn't cut your hair off or do other stuff like that, right? In the beginning, I did shave my head. A lot of that just came out of the military, just having a shorter haircut, you know. But um, eventually, towards the the uh, later years, I started to kind of grow my hair back so, out. You said you went to this one place on, on the east side when they were having a meeting or whatever, 
and they were in the garage giving tattoos to each other. Yeah, so what's weird is they used to have the Cobras actually from the east side. A bunch of those guys would actually come in and do the tattoo work for a bunch of skinheads. But the idea of the tattoo to, to make something that related back to your group or, or just, you know. We, we eventually did. We came up with a tattoo that was uh, had a swastika that had points um, on the swastikas. Actually, the Flint Journal, when they did the story on me, took a picture of the tattoo. And that was what was on the front page of the journal at the time. People that were in your group at that time would get a, a distinctive tattoo that was an insignia for your group. Yep, yep. If you had points on the swastika, there was uh, points on either end. That means you had some form of leadership. Um, if you didn't, it was just the, the swastika. So eventually you end up in court in front of a judge. Yes. You were punished. Yep. I served some time in county jail and I was put on probation uh, for five years, which is, is after my incarceration. So my incarceration really allowed me to split myself off from the group. Uh, because I did admit to the crimes that I had committed, uh, Ron and those guys um, kind of gave cold shoulders to a lot of the different people. And everything kind of got really awkward for everybody at that time because nobody knew if somebody was, you know, snitching on them or if something was going to come down onto them for something they did. So did the group um, break up at that point? Some of them all still stayed together, but I was not with that group anymore. My uncle and some of the other guys still continued on until they were uh, my uncle actually eventually got in trouble for the same crime as mine. He was a co-defendant and he ended up going to prison for his crimes because he was a habitual offender. Does the group exist today? No, no. Ron Chadwell, um, who I talked about earlier, was murdered. You found religion, so to speak, somewhere along the path. Mm -hmm. And tell us just a little bit about that. We're running short of time here, but just... Yeah, now, I, I started to look at things more of like an omnibus where I tried to find the good in a lot of different things. Ideas I had, one of the things I had really started to research and look into is why did I ever get in trouble in the first place um, as a juvenile, you know, all the way in growing up. And one of the things that we lacked in the city of Flint was a lot of mentorship. We just didn't have mentorship programs. So one of my main focuses on pulling myself out of trouble, and I was still on probation at the end of this, and one of the reasons the judge was so happy with me and my probation officer was that they'd never had a guy on probation do something like this before. And so I created a program, a mixed martial arts program, to actually help pull kids that were trying to join inner city gangs, try to help them to de-radicalize, show them a better, there is hope, um, and that their life isn't over when they get was into it, trouble. What was it about your experience that mm -hmm. caused you to want to change directions? Um, honestly, it was... It was the realization I started seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist and started to focus on trauma and the trauma that I had um, seen in my life or had been part of. It was when I was actually started to kind of uh, take care of that subconscious trauma that I had been dealing with my whole life that I realized a lot of what had happened to me in my life um, led me to where I had been. And so if I had been through this and plenty of other kids in the city of Flint that joined gangs, then I knew that it was, a, it was an issue, it was a problem in the city of Flint. And so that's what I started to try to focus on and, and made that realization that. What I'm getting at is to focus on yourself. From there, you uh, began to work on gang, gang prevention activities, basically. Yep, I uh, started work on my own, actually, trying to see what I could do to pull uh, members out of hate groups and gangs, inner city gangs. By having the mixed martial arts gym, I had started to meet a lot of different people in the community that kind of did something similar. Um, but my focus wanted to be on if I could change in my life, then I could help other people to change and see, you know, the light um, out of the dark tunnel. And so 
Um, that's kind of what I started to do. I pulled uh, about 15 different members out of hate groups um, before I started to work with the organizations that I work for now. You have um, moved on to begin to work with a national organization. Um, it's labeled off as uh, black people are not our friends, but it's made for clickbait. So what we'll do is we flood hate sites with all these different videos in hopes that somebody, even if it's one out of a thousand members, decides to click on that video and it tells them why they shouldn't be part of a hate group or why how I was able to change my life. On top of doing that, we do intervention work. So we have a 24-7 hotline through an organization called Parallel Networks that these people can call if it's a family member that's worried about a person that's involved in some type of hate crime or hate hate in their community they can call and um, we'll actually go in um, we work with department of homeland security fbi um, cia what's the name uh, of this organization if it's icsbe so it's the international center for research on violent extremism um, it's based out of washington dc all right and you're a program specialist yes all right, so one of my questions is, having left this group and having grown up in the city where, you know, your pals, many of them were part of this, part of this um, extreme group, have you had any concerns for your personal safety? I've had a lot of threats, some that I didn't necessarily take um, completely serious, some I've had to report to the police and to the FBI. Um, that seemed pretty credible, people that were actually part of some pretty uh, large organizations. But how many um, groups in the Flint area that are uh, what I would call white nationalist or hate groups? So we always know that there's a KKK somewhat organized here. I don't know how organized, and we don't know a lot. They're really secretive when it comes to a lot of the stuff they do. But the main organization that we've been paying a lot of attention to recently, and we've noticed a lot of uh, graffiti um, and things popping up is the, the Folk Nation, I believe is how they say it. It's, it's a new group, um, at least for our area, it's a newer group. Uh, SPLC is how I found out um, who this group's symbols were because we were seeing the symbols in Flint of a uh, type of a uh, trident pitchfork almost in a way like you would think like folks up or some old gang. But then there was the word, the numbers 1488 next to it. And everybody knows that's hate rhetoric. Things have changed a lot from the time when I was part of a hate group to where they are now and the way social media works and the way that interaction works between these groups. And it's obviously a lot easier for them to interact now um, than it used to be. And then with this past administration really birthed life too. You took a frolic into politics for a few minutes. Yeah, so there's actually a, a big story behind that too and then we could get into further, but it was never really an intention that we would, I would ever get elected. We knew with my past it was going to get brought up. Yeah, we thought maybe we could uh, make some change in policy. That was kind of my idea and a, a friend of mine that maybe we could get in and help on uh, building some better policy towards race relations and um, um, police um, activity and things and how you know, people were being treated. This is before George Floyd. So, um, and so you weren't successful at politics, but you were. You went and, and put your toe in the water to see how that right. works. Try it out and see how it works. Yep. All right. So uh, you said, and now we can come back to this, point that we raised earlier and that was you you said you'd organized over 100 rallies yeah there was a lot of different um things that had, you know maybe happened or um events that we thought maybe somebody should um you know hold an event to bring light to things um the the rise against racism rally that we had at the back to the bricks which was all over the news um we hosted that event because there was a burton family that was actually attacked um a, a black family their house was they worked for general motors uaw members um, and there was a lot of attention being brought to what was going on there. But 
people didn't feel like there was a big enough police investigation into trying to figure out who the uh, was a racially, a racially motivated attack on the black family. Yes, yes, they uh, threw a Molotov cocktail bomb at their garage. Um, and uh, just uh, doing different things at night to really just cause chaos. For so you did fear. rallies in Flint and other places? Yeah, I did rallies in Flint. Um, I went down and helped uh, do counter rallies in um, Charlottesville. I also went out to Standing Rock um, during the water crisis. So I was in a lot of water crisis so with, with what was going on in Flint and being involved in the politics there. Um, decided to start kind of getting involved in some of my research was taking me towards how um, environmental impacts have a link to extremism um, in itself, and so. And so, the, a lot of a lot of these people get involved in this activity, and then when you know the lights are on or the microphones going, they all are you know for peace and love. Mm -hmm. How do you Even respond to that now? I mean, is that some somebody has a right to be suspicious about you and your past? Oh, you always have a right to be suspicious about anybody. And I always tell everybody, do your research before, you know, you make a decision, a decision to judge. Um, you see that with a lot of organizations today that say that they're not a racist organization or they have no attachments to white nationalism, but they actually do when you follow the money. Um, Proud Boys, for instance, um, one of the reasons why I say not necessarily white nationalism, but they're definitely an accelerationist group. Um, they want the all out destruction and fall. They're really anti-government rhetoric. Um, but the KKK, I mean, come on, you can sit there and they can declare that they're not about violence, but that's all they've ever perpetrated in this country since the twenties and on, um, our violence and fear is what they use to promote their membership and, uh, try to take power, you know, in several different areas. Also the Oath Keepers, who is a new organization that, uh, they've been around for some time and three percenters. But we're finding that they actually have a lot of different police involvement, a lot of members that are actually uh, police officers that are members of the Oath Keepers. Well, Ryan Laurie, you're an interesting guy. I've enjoyed talk talking with you, and uh, your story is really quite remarkable. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's been great. And like I said, if you have any questions in the future, just give me a chat. Yours. No, you can't have